0: following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. It's the story of two of Jesus' disciples uh, who are otherwise unknown to us, In the whole story of the Bible, one of them is named Cleopas, the other one doesn't even get a name. But these two guys were walking the road from Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, to a city called Emmaus on that afternoon, that Sunday afternoon that Jesus had been raised from the dead that morning. And here's the story of what happens to these two guys on the road. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, "How foolish you are, how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen, and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way, and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So here are two disciples uh, walking along the road, just pondering everything that's happened over these past few days, trying to put it all together and trying to make sense of it. And at some point in their journey, Jesus joins in he comes alongside them and he starts walking with them along the road to Emmaus and Jesus does a little bit of amateur acting here he pretends that he doesn't know what's going on and they are at this point kept from recognizing him so they don't know this is Jesus they just think it's some stranger probably from out of town because he hasn't heard anything about this huge drama that's gone on with Jesus being crucified so Jesus asks them, well, what's been happening what's going on and they tell him the story they tell him about how this guy Jesus they thought he was going to be the one to free Israel, to redeem Israel, but he'd been crucified by the Romans, his body put in a tomb. But then just this morning, some of the women had gone to the tomb and found the stone had been rolled away and found the body wasn't there, and they're reporting these angelic visions. And then some of their other companions had gone to the tomb and found that it was just as the woman had said, and they were trying to figure out what all of this means. And as they recount this story to Jesus. He makes this statement to them, which which sounds quite harsh to our ears in verse 25, but I can kind of imagine Jesus saying this maybe with a smirk on his face, if you can picture it that way. He says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then Luke, who's writing the story, tells us that Jesus went back to the scriptures And explain to them all the things in the scriptures concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to have been on the Emmaus road that day? I mean, wouldn't it have been great just walking alongside these disciples? As Jesus went back to the scriptures, he goes back to the Old Testament. That's our Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Christian Bible. That's the scriptures that they had. He goes back to the scriptures. And he shows them all the things there that point towards him as their fulfillment. Now, here's a question how do you think Jesus went about this? What what, what was his approach as he opened the scriptures to them? Did he, A, take a whole bunch of selected verses and kind of pull them out and show them the ones that specifically talked about a coming Messiah? Did he pluck some individual verses out, maybe passages like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 110, passages that kind of had this messianic ring to them and say, well, this, this passage here, This one is all about me. And this passage over here, this is clearly a prophecy about me. And sort of go piecemeal like that through the Bible. Maybe he did. But I tend to think that Jesus knew his Bible better than that. And that he wanted these disciples to know their Bibles better than that. I can imagine that what Jesus did as they walked along the Emmaus Road was to go right back and tell the whole story all over again. To go right back through the story of Scripture through the Old Testament story, through the story, the whole story of humanity in general, and Israel in particular, and tell the story again with himself in the center of it. I don't imagine that Jesus just looked at little bits of the Bible that pointed towards him. I imagine that he told them and showed them the way in which the entirety of the scriptures all pointed towards him as their summation and fulfillment. So Luke tells us that he goes back and starts with Moses. It says, beginning with Moses. Now Moses probably doesn't mean the person of Moses. Moses was a shorthand reference to the first five books of the Bible, which are called the books of Moses. The first five books in our Bible. So what Jesus did is go back to those books and start there, and start showing them from those books, the early story of humanity And the forming of the nation of Israel, showing how even in those parts of the Bible, it all points to him. So maybe he went right back to the beginning, to to creation, and showed them how even there he was present. Even there he he was involved in bringing about the world that God created, so that the world is full of the life and the knowledge and the presence of Jesus. And if Jesus did that, if that's the approach that he took, that he went right back to the beginning and then traced the storyline of the scriptures, the Old Testament, right through. It would have taken quite a while, but he had time. They had all afternoon. It was about half a day's journey. So you can imagine them just meandering along and Jesus just goes through one passage after another. And reasonably soon in the story, he would have got to Noah. Good old Noah. Noah's been in the news a bit recently. Noah's probably had more publicity in the last month than he's had for several millennia now. But it's a good example of because it's entirely likely that as these disciples walked along that at some point Jesus talked about Noah. If he went through all the scriptures, he would have covered Noah. So here's the question. I know the movie itself generated a lot of controversy and some people thought it was wonderful and some people thought it was terrible. But here's the question. What do you think Jesus did with Noah? As he walked along that day, as he talked to them about Noah, or put the question another way, if Jesus was directing that movie, if Jesus had $130 million to spend, he probably wouldn't spend it on making a movie. But let's say he did. What angle would he give it? <clears throat> would Russell Crowe be in it? Hard to say. But what would Jesus have done with Noah? How would he have told the story? Maybe he would have shown these disciples the way that the story of Noah was a story that beautifully brings together the justice of God and the mercy of God together in one story. It's a story about the justice of God because God looks upon humanity at the beginning of this Noah story. He looks upon humanity and there's this, indict, this indictment where God says he regretted having made human beings. His heart was just so grieved over the wickedness of humanity, over the degree to which humanity had turned their backs on him that the inclination of the human heart was just towards evil, that the earth was full of violence, that people had turned so far away from God, God was grieved and he regretted that he had even made us. And so God literally brings this flood of judgment upon the world, this flood of justice and judgment, righteous judgment against all that human beings have done against him. And yet that judgment, that flood, was just a trickle compared to the flood of God's judgment that was unleashed on the cross. There's a parallel here. The flood of Noah was unleashed on one generation and almost wiped out the generation living at the time. But on the cross, when Jesus died, God unleashed the fullness of his judgment against humanity, not just against one generation, but against every single human being who would ever live the fullness of his judgment against human sin and selfishness and brokenness and evil. It was all poured out in its fullness on the cross. The cross was a far more severe demonstration of the judgment of God than the flood of Noah, perhaps less visible, but more severe, infinitely more severe and yet here's the difference. In Noah's flood, the judgment of God is poured out on all humanity living at the time, every person except Noah's family. At the cross, it's concentrated on one man. The judgment of God all comes into a funnel and is channeled into one innocent human being, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus himself on the cross absorbs the full impact the full weight of the severity of God's judgment on human evil. He absorbs it all within his own body, one individual man, on the cross. That's the justice of God fulfilled in the death of Jesus. That's the judgment of God that the judgment of Noah and the flood pointed towards. And yet there is mercy because in the Noah story, What does God do? He preserves. He doesn't just wipe everyone out. He preserves Noah. He preserves Noah's family. He brings them through the flood and onto dry land. And it's the same with Jesus. That God, even though he poured out the fullness of his judgment upon his son on the cross, he brings Jesus safely through death. And on the third day, that Sunday morning, it's what we're here celebrating today, he raised Jesus physically, bodily from the dead, brought him through death, through judgment, out the other side into new life. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was like that dove coming back with an olive branch to the ark. It was the first sign that there's hope beyond death and beyond judgment. The first sign. That's what the resurrection was like. It was like that olive branch, the sign that the judgment of God, the floodwaters are subsiding. And humanity has hope. And there's new life that's possible. And there's a new world that's opening up on the other side of God's judgment. When Jesus was resurrected, it wasn't just one man walking out of the tomb one Sunday morning, it was a whole future. It was a whole new world, it was a whole new creation being born just as this new creation opened up again after the flood. And this has massive implications for us because as those who belong to Jesus, Jesus carries us through the floodwaters of God's judgment. The ark is opened up to us, except in the Easter story, it's not the animals who come in, it's us. We come into this place of refuge, this place of safety, and by being identified with Jesus, And belonging to him through faith, he carries us through the judgment of God, he carries us out the other side, and he anchors us on the dry land in the spacious place where we find freedom from sin, we find forgiveness from God, we find new life and relationship with him. That would make a good movie, I think. I don't know how you'd do it, but that is the purpose of the Noah story. Now, I don't know whether that's exactly how Jesus unfolded it to these disciples on the road. Maybe, maybe not. But the Noah story, it's an historical event. It really happened. But it's so much more than just the story itself. The whole story of Noah is a massive signpost to Jesus and especially to his death and especially to his resurrection and the implications of that for our lives today. Is it any wonder that these disciples said, were not our hearts burning within us when he opened the scriptures to us? Jesus walked through these stories, probably the entirety of the Old Testament, through the Exodus, through the law, through the history of Israel, through the prophets, through the wisdom writings, through the Psalms, and showed time and time and time and time again how the whole thing all pointed to him. And you can just imagine, I imagine those disciples going to bed that night, just lying there thinking back to all the stories and all the passages in their Bible they knew so well. And they knew the story was an old story to them. And yet suddenly it was a new story because Jesus was in the middle of it. All these stories and passages they knew so well suddenly came to life for them because they all pointed to Jesus. Every part of the Bible whispers his name. It's easy to see Easter the death and resurrection of Jesus, as just isolated events that happened one weekend. Jesus died for our sins, and he was raised from the dead. But the Easter story is the climax of a much bigger story that stretches right back to creation itself. And we must not see Easter in a vacuum. It's the crescendo of a great symphony that's been playing since the beginning of time. It's the culmination of everything that's gone before it. And the better that we know the stories that come before it, the better we're going to be able to see the significance of what Jesus has done for us. When you understand the Noah story in view of Jesus, it not only gives you a better picture of Noah, it gives you a better and deeper view of what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection and the new life that he purchased for us. Because the Old Testament is the canvas on which the New Testament is painted. It's the backdrop against which we can see the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. So as we look back through the Old Testament, through the stories of Israel and the stories of humanity, let's read them as Christians with Christ-focused lenses and see how they all point to Jesus and tell the Easter story. So let's come back to these disciples on the road. They finally got to Emmaus. And Jesus is still kind of in amateur acting mode here. He he acts like he's going to go further. And the disciples say to him, no, no, stay with us, lodge with us for the night. We've got a bed here that you can have. So Jesus agrees, and he goes into their place and sits down for them with a meal. And at the beginning of the meal, there's some bread on the table, and Jesus takes this bread, and he breaks it. And at that precise moment, the eyes of these disciples are opened, and they recognize him. They recognize this is their friend, this is their rabbi, this is Jesus, this stranger on the road who's just been walking and unfolding the scriptures, this is Jesus, the one that they've been talking about. And then the very next moment, Jesus disappears from their sight. And we're not told why that is. We don't know why he disappears. I I imagine maybe it's because he knew that if he stayed with them, they were going to cling on to him like children. They'd already lost him once. They were not going to let him out of their sight again. And he wanted them to go. He wanted them to go and tell the other disciples and tell them the story. He didn't want them to stay in one place. But why does Jesus choose that precise moment to reveal himself to these disciples over dinner when he breaks bread? Well, just three nights before this, Jesus had sat around a table with his disciples, probably not these two guys, but his 12 closest disciples. And he'd broken bread. And he'd given that bread and that wine incredible significance. And there's an uncanny similarity in the way that Luke tells these two stories, the story of the Last Supper and the story of the meal at Emmaus. In Luke 22, when he describes Jesus taking the bread, he says in verse 19, he took bread, gave thanks broke it, and gave it to them. And then in Luke 24, in Emmaus, when he describes the meal, in verse 30, he says, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. The same fourfold repetition is used. Authors don't do that by accident. Luke's telling us something. He wants us to make a connection between the Emmaus meal and the last supper where Jesus broke bread with his disciples. Why? Because of the symbolism of that bread. That when Jesus broke it with his disciples the night before he died, he took it and gave it to them and said, this is my body broken for you. The bread represents the broken body of Jesus and his sacrificial death for us. And that was the first moment when Jesus' death had really become personal for his disciples. He talked about it numerous times before that. He told them, The Son of Man is going to be handed over. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be crucified. He'd he'd gone through this several times with his disciples. But at the Last Supper is the first time Jesus looks them in the eye and says, this is my body broken for you. It's not abstract. It's not a theory. It's not all humanity. It's not a nameless sea of faces. This is my body broken for you. One of the most powerful scenes I've ever seen in a movie is in the movie Goodwill Hunting. And Matt Damon plays this 20 year old guy who's been abused by his father, and it leads to all kinds of destructive patterns of behavior in his life. He ends up in these therapy sessions with a counselor played by Robin Williams. And there's one session where Robin Williams, the therapist, holds up this file that just documents all the abuse that Matt Damon has suffered at the hands of his father. And he says to him, You see all this? It's not your fault. And Matt Damon sort of shrugs it off and says, Yeah, I know. And Robin Williams says, No, look at me, son. It's not your fault. And Matt Damon kind of, Yeah, I know. And Robin Williams moves closer to him and says again, It's not your fault. He keeps repeating that phrase, It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Until Matt Damon just completely breaks down. He's unable to keep up his defenses any longer. And it's the first time that he's really able to accept deeply that he is not to blame for what his father has done to him. That's the impact those words of Jesus are meant to have. As Jesus looked at his disciples... He looks at us and he says, This is my body broken for you. Yeah, we know Jesus died. We know that he was raised again. We know the story. No, no, no. This is my body broken for you. It's broken for you. It's broken for you. It's so easy for the Easter story just to be a story. Whether you believe it or not, whether you think it's just a fairy tale, whether you believe it and try to live by it, it's just so easy to become numb to it. Jesus died. We know this stuff. We go through it every year. But God's desire is that we would hear those words afresh and they would cut to our heart. This is my body broken for you. Because when you realize the significance of those words, that Jesus didn't die for a nameless sea of faces. He died for you. Then like the disciples on the Emmaus Road, suddenly your eyes are opened. And you see Jesus. And you don't just see him as a savior, a lord, son of God, in some abstract sense. You see him as your only hope. You see him as your life. You see him as the only thing, the only one standing between you and the judgment of God. You see him as your savior, your rescue, your deliverer. And God's heart is that we would get a fresh glimpse of Jesus not just telling the story over and over, but that we would see Jesus. And as we look in his eyes, we would see the depth of our sin and the depth of his grace. And that we would be brought to our knees in awe and wonder and surrender. This is my body, broken for you. And it's not enough just to recognize Jesus. He asks us to respond. And the response that Jesus asks from us is called faith. He asks us to step out in faith. And the beautiful thing of Easter is that our faith, the faith Jesus asks of you, takes the same shape as the Easter story. There's a death and there's a resurrection. The death and resurrection of Jesus is not just something that happened to him 2,000 years ago. It's something that happens to us today. We die and we rise. Jesus invites us to go through a dying where we die to our old self. We die to our old life. The old identity, self-centered, self-governed, self-preoccupied, that's gone. We say goodbye to that. That is nailed to the cross with Jesus. It's crucified with him. We decide. This is what faith is. We decide that old identity is no longer who we are, and we ask and receive God's forgiveness for living that way for so long. And then just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we are raised to new life with him, In a spiritual sense, we receive eternal life, new relationship with God, peace with God, freedom from the power of sin, a new eternal destiny with God and the new creation when Jesus returns, the presence of God living within us, the forgiveness of sins, all the life and the healing that's promised by God in our innermost being. All that is part of the resurrection that God invites us to go through, dying with Christ, being raised to new life with Christ. He asks us to go through our own Easter experience as a response to what he has done for us. I remember I went through that process or something like it when I was in my early teenage years. I was in this intermediates group uh, in my church, and we must have been quite a rowdy group because the teachers of this group, their discipline strategy for us was that if we were naughty, they took off our shoes and chucked them out in the church car park. And I can't tell you the number of times I looked out there and saw cars just drive straight over my shoes. I hate to think how many pairs of shoes my parents paid just to get me through the intermediates class at my church. And I don't remember much of what those guys taught me, my teachers, during that time. But it must have been enough for something to take root. And I think that the challenge for church kids like me, I suppose, people that have kind of had a Christian upbringing, is there's a point where you've got to decide if this is going to be real for you. Where I had to decide, is this just going to be the faith of my parents that I'm going to mooch off for the rest of my life? Or will it be real for me? And somehow, someway, over about three or four years, for me, it was a real process. I don't remember one moment in time, but a real process of somehow dying to that old life, that old self-driven life, and being raised to new life in a relationship with Jesus. And when I was 14, I got baptized, which is a beautiful symbol of that, dying, going under the water, dying with Christ, coming out of the water, being raised to new life with Jesus. And I just remember, as I came up out of the water, and walked back to the changing room just being overwhelmed with this feeling that all I wanted was Jesus. Just all I wanted. All I wanted was to follow him. Just nothing else mattered. Didn't care. All I wanted was to follow Jesus. And I wish I could tell you that ever since then that feeling's burned just as strongly within me. But it hasn't. A lot of the time it's waned. I haven't been always as enthusiastic about my faith as I was then. It's been up and down. But I know that I've gone through that death and I've come out the other side into resurrection. I know that I have a relationship with God because of Jesus. I know that Jesus has brought me through the flood of God's judgment and out the other side. I know that I'm safe and secure in Jesus, my ark. I know that's happened to me. And Jesus offers the same to you. He invites you to go through that same process of faith, to die with him to be raised with him. Maybe the first time ever that you make that decision, he invites you to do that. What better day to do that than today, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, to take that step to die to your old life, to be raised anew to life with God. Everything that needs to be done for that to happen to you has been done. The next move is yours. Jesus offers that to you, and his arms are open wide to you, and he's waiting for you to come home. That story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, I think it's so appropriate that it it takes the scene of a journey. Half a day's journey. I see it kind of like a picture of our lives. The journey of faith. And we're all at a certain point on that journey. And the beautiful thing is that wherever you are on the journey of faith, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, that Jesus comes alongside you. Just like he came alongside those disciples on the road to Emmaus, he comes alongside you and over time helps you to understand And helps you to recognize him until there is that moment of recognition and surrender to him. And I want to ask you just as we close this morning to imagine and picture where you are on that journey. From Jerusalem to Emmaus, where are you? You're walking with those disciples, just listening to Jesus unfold and unpack the scriptures. Maybe beginning to develop a little bit of understanding, just starting to open up to spiritual things. Wherever you are, I want to encourage you to take the next step this morning. Maybe for you, if you're just beginning that journey, the next step is to begin a conversation with God. Just have a conversation. Just to start exploring. Start questioning. Start moving towards him in faith. Start responding to the reality of his presence because he's already right there beside you. Maybe for you, you're already in Emmaus and you're at the table. And you're right there and Jesus is breaking the bread. And maybe for the first time today, you see him maybe with fresh, or maybe you've heard about him, you knew, whatever, but today you see him. I want to encourage you to respond. Not to walk out of here and dismiss that as some spiritual experience, but to respond in faith and to step towards Jesus. To go through that death and resurrection. Turn away from your old life. Turn towards him in faith. Begin that relationship with Jesus today. You might feel like, I don't have my life altogether. I need to get some things sorted out. I'm such a bad person, whatever. That, We don't come to Jesus because we're good people. We come to Jesus because we are broken people and we're desperately in need of his mercy. That's the whole point. We come with all of our brokenness because we can't get there on our own. And we desperately need his saving love to help us. And he's already extended it to us through the Easter events. And now he invites us to come. He holds out the olive branch to us. And he says, step into this new world. Step into this new creation, this new life that I have provided for you. And maybe you're here today, and you're a follower of Jesus, you're a Christian, maybe you feel like there's nothing really in this for me at all. But you know, in a moment, we're going to take the meal of communion. Jesus didn't just share that meal once. He told his disciples to keep taking it, and on a regular basis, to break bread. And we take this little wafer and this little cup of juice, and it's the same thing. And if you know Jesus, maybe you've been a Christian 50 years, I'd encourage you to ask God that today, as you break bread, that your eyes would be opened afresh, as if for the first time. And that in a sense, you might be born again, again. Not that you go through the death and resurrection again, but that the scales just fall off your eyes in a fresh way and you just see Jesus like you've never seen him before. And in his eyes, you see your own sin, but you see the endless mercy of God. Ask God to give you that fresh vision of Jesus, fresh realization of what he has done for you through his death and his burial and his resurrection. And I want to invite you that as we take communion this morning, if you're ready to take another step on your spiritual journey, wherever you are on the Emmaus Road, if you're just beginning back in Jerusalem, or whether you're right there in Emmaus, recognizing Jesus. If you're ready to take that next step, I want to encourage you and invite you to come and take communion at the front this morning. There's tables all around the gym. You can go to any one of them, and there's nothing particularly special about this one up here, but it's a symbolic gesture for you before God, saying, today's the day I'm taking another step in my gym. I'm not going to be content with where I am now, with this level of awareness and experience of Jesus. I'm hungry for more. I want to see Jesus. I want my eyes to be opened. I want to know the reality of his presence and his power and his healing and his transforming love in my life. If that is you, I want to encourage you and invite you down the front as we take communion just to share it down here. You can just come and sit here if you want to. You can come and kneel and just in the quietness of your own heart, be with God at the foot of the cross here and just ponder the significance of what Jesus has done for you and respond however your heart needs to respond this morning. Say to him whatever you need to say. Take whatever step you need to take. You know what that is. God's prompting you. You know what step that is. I invite you to take it. There's nothing special about this area of the room. This is between you and God, but it's putting a stake in the ground and saying, I'm taking that step today. This has been a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry,